0: Today on the podcast, I am talking to Matt Osmond. Matt is a former Navy JAG, and we'll talk about that, and who's now a judge in North Carolina. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you coming on to share your experiences and you know maybe pass on your story to JAGs who may be coming after you, may be interested in what you're doing. But Matt, what was the years of your service in the Navy JAG Corps? So I
1: graduated law school in 2001. I actually was at OIS in Rhode Island when 9-11 happened. It was 9-11 was three days before graduation. It was pretty wild because this thing that I thought was going to be this pretty neat adventure, fun thing to do, uh, the nature and tenor of it changed almost overnight. (laughs) Just a few days before graduation, so Naval Justice School in fall of two thousand one, and then I got to my first duty station in Japan in January two thousand two, and then I punched out in May of two thousand eight from Charleston. Seven years active duty, right around there. Yeah, right around there. And what was uh, what did you do while you were on active duty? So in Japan, I was at the trial service office in Yokosuka back when we had TSOs. Prosecutor there, traveled all over the Pacific AOR, spent a lot of time in Guam, spent some time in Misawa. I did a deployment for four months on the first ever ESG out of Sasebo on board the Essex for four months. From there, I went to Spain where I was the deputy SJA in Rhoda. Oh, wow. Yeah, back-to-back overseas, because Japan was forward deployed. It was considered to be a hardship, even though it was shore duty. And I can assure you that me and the other JOs there did not consider it to be a hardship. So from there to Spain, two years in Spain as the deputy SJA, and then back to Charleston, to the NILSO branch office at the Naval Weapons Station there, I did a brief three-month stint where I was the JAG for the Naval Nuclear Power Training Command because they needed a quick fill-in. And then I moved over for two years to be the OIC of the NILSO branch. And that, of course, as you know, took me up and down, basically back and forth to Florida n- multiple times, at least you know once a month, if not more, from Charleston
0: or up and down to Florida all the time. Was that the Jacksonville area?
1: Yes, Jacksonville-Mayport. I mean, the, the main command for the NILSO in Charleston, you know, my CEO was in Jacksonville. So we went back and forth a lot.
0: Now, was Charleston from where you separated from the Navy?
1: Yes. And what went into your decision to get out? So that was 2008, 2007. There were several factors. First, I met my wife in Spain. She graduated from Annapolis. She was a SWO who then laterally transferred to be a public affairs officer. So she was the PAO in Rhoda. We met and got married during our time there. And then she got out, having completed her post-academy active requirement. And we wanted to start a family. I really wanted to continue to litigate. And at that time, there was lots of talk about creating career path and career progressions For litigators to still remain competitive for promotion, you had litigation tracks, but those were still relatively in their infancy at the time. And there was no guarantee that you could do that type of job and still remain fairly competitive. And I get it. I mean, the ultimate goal of the JAG Corps is to develop lawyers who can advise war commanders, international law, rules of engagement. I mean, that's the ultimate mission. I mean, I recognize that Criminal justice, UCMJ, things of that nature is somewhat secondary to that role, even though it's important for good order and discipline. But I recognize where where litigators fall in the overall hierarchy, at least at that time. And so for me, who wanted to continue to, and I had a real passion for litigation in the courtroom, I felt like if I really wanted to keep doing that, I needed to get out. So the desire to kind of settle down, start a family, not be moving every few years, be closer to family as well and move back to Charlotte and then also keep doing what I wanted to do, which is litigate. So it was multifaceted, but a lot of that. Plus <laughs> I was a little spoiled, Japan, Spain, Charleston. It was all downhill from there. What
0: was left? <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Looking at your LinkedIn profile, you went on to Weaver Bennett and Bland where you did some litigation, business contractual disputes, liens, construction related cases, and uh, cases involving homeowners associations. How did your search go that landed you with that firm? That was hard. And that was a
1: long, protracted, drawn out process. I probably started job hunting in earnest early in 2008, used up a lot of leave, coming back and forth to Charlotte to network and to meet with people and to interview. And I had hoped that my Navy service would be something that a lot of people would recognize and see and see the value in but let's be honest um, we still live in a in, in a legal world where where you went to law school matters where you on the law review a lot of those connections and i and i went to regent in virginia beach and loved it fantastic education it was perfect and quite frankly it's how i found the navy jag corps so i have zero regrets at the same time people were still overly focused on academic record because they didn't understand what a Navy JAG did, and so they weren't willing to invest in, here's an experienced lawyer with seven years of in-courtroom litigation experience. You just need to help me get proficient on the North Carolina part of it, which is where I had taken the bar, and it was just really hard to sell that to a lot of employers. Finally, there was a, a former JAG, James Epperson, who had served some years prior who was a partner at Weaver, Bennett & Bland, and he brought me in. It's a small firm. It ended up not being the best fit for me. I was only there for about six months. I had, I said in my head, I wanted to litigate. I wanted to do civil litigation. I didn't want to do any more criminal work because my last tour in Charleston, I did a lot of defense, a lot of really serious, significant defense, and it had burned me out a little bit a lot of emotionally difficult cases, a lot of hard things. And, and, you know, think about where we were in 2008. We had a lot of people coming back from the desert and a lot of people coming back with a lot of issues. And so dealing with that just kind of burned me out a lot. So I didn't think I wanted to do criminal. Well, six months later, I realized I wasn't happy at that firm. And so I then went down to Union County, which is one county over from where I live now, to be an assistant district attorney and a prosecutor there because I realized that was my first love was criminal work and being a prosecutor and that was my first love so that's what took me there but it was a difficult search
0: so two things first of all I should point out you said Regent is where you learned about the Navy JAG corps and I should point out to the to the people listening one the internet wasn't prolific as it is today it was just in its infancy and two People have those references, and today we kind of take it for granted with shows like JAG and A Few Good Men and the internet, but back then, it was not as, as no, well known. Well, and just to clarify, A Few Good Men came out in 92,
1: but... That's right. But, I'm sorry. But, I'm off by 10 years. It's okay. But you had A Few Good Men, and you had the TV show, Harmon Rabb, Catherine Bell. You had You had the JAG TV show, but that was kind of all people knew about it. Yeah. And so... I had always been interested in the military, always been interested in the Navy, but just never thought it was something that would work for me. There was a young lady officer who was a year behind me at Regent when I was at 2L and she was a lep. And I met her and I'm like, whoa, what is that? What she had yeah. obviously done her sea her tour and was in the LEP program and kind of I learned about it and It's not that I didn't know that existed. I just never thought it was a possibility. And she introduced me to some different folks and opened
0: doors. The other point I was going to make, and I'll start here. So you're unhappy at uh, doing what you're doing at Weaver, Bennett, and Bland, and you went one county over. Now, was it a hard sell of your military experience there, or did they recognize it right away?
1: No. To be frank, the elected DA in that county was the best man in my wedding, and he had been recruiting me to come work for him for months at that point. He knew I was getting out. He wanted me to come work for him. And, you know, I kind of wanted to make my own way. I wanted to prove that I could do it in the civil world. I wanted to prove that I could do this. And then when I realized I was just being prideful, he was a great opportunity to get back into the courtroom and do what I love. I ran down there as quick as I could. So no, it wasn't. And, And I've noticed that at other district attorney offices in North Carolina in general, there are plenty of reserve or former JAGs. I think most DAs, prosecutors see that value for sure. It's more private firms that it's, unless you have a niche specialty like environmental law or something like that, that's going to be a harder sell for
0: private firms, I think,
1: or at least it was then.
0: So what kind of cases were you handling in Union County as the assistant district attorney?
1: Everything from low-level traffic offenses to I tried a first-degree murder case, two-and-a-half-week case, all the way to a jury. So everything from the lowest-level offense to the most serious.
0: Did you rediscover your mojo there, that you were really, that was your element?
1: Yes. Yes. That's what I really wanted to do. And then while I was there, the opportunity to run for a judgeship in Charlotte, presented itself and so I had always thought that I would like to be a judge one day but I didn't think that at 35 36 it would be possible but once the opportunity was there I jumped on it and it it worked out.
0: So tell us about the election tell us about what it was like filing as a candidate and I guess campaigning and all those things that we associate with elected office. It's rough. It is all-consuming especially when you have a
1: full-time job as you, as you should. (laughs) So, you know, you spend your day at work, you work, and then you, if you can break away during the day to go to lunch and go to events during lunch, you do. Rarely do you go home right after work. You go to some event to meet supporters, voters, fundraisers, whatever the case may be. And so you're always thinking about it. When I first ran in 2010, it was just my wife and I, we didn't have kids yet. So as hard as it was, we were able to really put everything into that. And my wife, with her public affairs background, is a tremendous asset in the campaign world. When I ran last year in 2022, we have three kids now, and I was a sitting judge. So the amount of things we had to juggle then was exponentially harder. Because, you know, if you've got kids, life doesn't stop for them. They still have games and practices and needs and school things going on. And so you have to juggle all that. But it is very much an all-consuming process.
0: And so you got elected to office for the first time what year?
1: 2010, taking office in January 2011.
0: What level was that? Was that the circuit level?
1: That's a district court level in North Carolina, which handles criminal misdemeanors, civil disputes under $25,000. Family court, so child custody, divorces, property distribution, child support, and also juvenile court as well. And I served in every capacity in district in during 12 years except for juvenile. I've never done any juvenile court.
0: So was this really where you really had to broaden your practice for the first time, encompassing new areas of the law? Or did you touch a little bit of those at the firm? And some of that at the uh, the criminal stuff, obviously, at the, at the uh, prosecution office, but all these other things that you were talking about, was that your really first exposure to those?
1: Yes. I felt very comfortable with the criminal process. My first four years on the bench were primarily in criminal and handling some of that. There was some low-level exposure to civil in the form of some domestic violence issues, protective orders that are civil in nature. But it wasn't until 2015 and 2016 that I had a two-year, I call it tour of duty, in family court because it really felt like that when I did two years in family court with very little family court background. So that was very much drinking from the proverbial fire hose because you're learning a pretty intense area of law that's very emotional for a lot of people. It's far more contentious than criminal ever was. It's just, it's a significant adjustment. So I learned a lot during that tour and I'm glad I did it. And then after that, I transitioned back into the criminal world because that's, I think that's generally seen as more my area of expertise. Well, I was going to say now that I'm, and I'm going through a similar process now that I'm in superior court. So the biggest difference between district and superior is district. By and large, you don't have a jury. So the judge is ruling on issues of law, but also the finder of fact and rendering verdicts and decisions. There are some limited juries in district court, but for the most part, no. In Superior, every trial is a jury trial unless they elect for a bench trial. So on the criminal process, again, I feel very comfortable. I had a fairly short learning curve with criminal jury trials. Civil work, however, (laughs) is my new learning curve because the civil issues that you see in Superior are different than the issues you see in District. These are the high-dollar contractual disputes, medical malpractice, complex business litigation, complex negligence claims, construction disputes, things like that, things that I was generally not exposed to in district. So it's kind of a new learning curve all over again. I had my first civil jury trial two weeks ago, a landlord-tenant dispute that had some significant tort issues and contract issues and damage issues It was pretty complicated. So there
0: was kind of a, there's a learning
1: curve there as well.
0: Did you find your experience in the Navy JAG Corps prepared you well for being a district attorney and would then build on that to become the judge? Yes, very much so. Obviously there's difference in how the
1: state system runs. For example, you're sitting, when you're asking questions, you have more control over voir dire and the jury selection process. I mean, I remember in the Navy having to submit my list of questions and you know, Judge Carol Gash, Captain Gash, who was the first military judge I appeared in front of in Japan, the, the control that she or other judges would have over that process. It's much more similar to the federal system. And In federal court, obviously judges pretty much handle Vladir in some place. In state court, you have a lot more free reign as a lawyer. And so, but at the same time, I still had that experience from the Navy and it definitely helped me. I also felt fairly confident in court, presenting, speaking in those contexts, being the appropriate formality, working with people, working within a hierarchy structure, having the appropriate deference for the right people. Those are all things that you just kind of pick up implicitly in the Navy and I think transfer very well to the the court system, to in-court litigation.
0: At the district court level, which I see here, you were there for 12 years. How often did you have to run for re-election?
1: Every four years. My first election was a contested election against an incumbent, which I won. In 2014 and 2018, when I was up again, I was unopposed both times. There is no better feeling than an election that you win as soon as you put your
0: name down. And what, went in your decision to move up to the superior court level, was it a need to be challenged or is it just a natural step? It was something that I had wanted to
1: do for some time based on the way of where I live and the way that the districts are drawn in my county and in my area, there really was only one seat that I could run for. And there was a long-running, well-respected incumbent there who I didn't want to challenge. And I spoke with him in 2021, told him I was really interested in this and I really wanted to do this. And he let me know a few months later that he wasn't planning to run again. And I immediately announced I was going to run. So it was something I had wanted to do for some time, but it's very much a matter of right time, right place, because the vacancy has to line up with when you can run and, and where you can run. So it was something I wanted to do for a long time. And yes, in terms of the intellectual aspect, I very much enjoyed my time in district court. I feel like I had started to become a little stale there. And if you become stale, the danger is you become a little grumpy or you make snap judgments because you think, well, I've seen this case how many times or this version of each case. And you need to keep that open mind as a judge until you see all the stuff comes out. But the longer you do it, it's a lot easier to say, well, I've seen this before. And so now that I'm in superior court, I feel intellectually challenged again. I feel pushed. I feel like I'm a much better version of myself and a better judge because that intellectual curiosity is back again. And I also love managing the jury process. I just really enjoy that. And
0: you mentioned before we hit record that this is a eight-year tenure. Yes. So you don't have to run for election as many times.
1: No, and that'll be 2030, and then I'll have 20 years as a judge.
0: You've been at this for five months. What are the big cases you had there?
1: I had a cold case rape from 1990 that obviously, as you might imagine, the primary evidence was DNA. That was a... Fascinating case. It took about a week and a half. A number of obviously you you kind of have to divorce yourself from the facts. The facts of what happened are really bad. And you you separate, you know, the emotion and the facts from the legal issues were were very interesting. And working through those legal issues, DNA, issues of proof, issues of identification even the jury selection process, anytime you're dealing with some sort of sexual assault or some sort of sexual offense, 20 to 25% of the jury pool right away is going to be out because they've had some experience themselves or their family or their friends that makes it very hard for them to remain objective and unbiased. And so jury selection issues in those is very difficult as well. That was probably the most intellectually interesting jury trial I've had so far I've only had one civil jury trial, and it was fairly complex as well between a mall and then a couple of fairly well-known franchisees who sell uh, various and sundry salty and sweet treats. And so that was an interesting thing, not to be too specific. That was interesting as well to kind of observe those issues, to work through those issues, to see, and just to observe the jury process, to see how the jury works. I always make it a point after every jury trial to go back and talk to the jury both to ask them if there's anything I could do to better, man- better manage the process for them, and also just to answer their questions, because invariably, juries always have questions, regardless of what their verdict is. Why weren't we given this? Why didn't this evidence come in? Or what about this? And so I want them to walk out with as few questions as possible, because I think that it enhances their faith in the system.
0: I should mention, you, you did a couple years in the reserves after you left active duty. Two and a half, it looks like, inactive, res- ready reserve. So you are you were never really planning to affiliate as an active reservist. I wanted to. Obviously, that's on my LinkedIn
1: bio because it's true. I was in the IRR for a couple years. I think I mustered a couple times at the local NOSC because they had those musters maybe once a year or yeah. two years for IRR folks to come in. But I never actually did anything. It was ironic that within a few months of being out, I was suddenly getting the the mail, a piece of paper that I'm now in 04, which I found to be hilarious, much simpler than had I stayed in and gone through a promotion board. So, I mean, I claim that because it happened, but I feel guilty saying that I was a lieutenant commander because I never really wore that rank. I wanted to affiliate with a reserve unit, but when I was leaving, I believe they were closing down the unit in Charleston or at least phasing it out. The reserve unit that used to be in Raleigh, North Carolina, was no more. There used to be something in Columbia, South Carolina, that was no more. There was a NOSC in Charlotte that I would have loved to have worked with, and they would have desperately loved to have a JAG, but I was told no. I was basically told, if you want to be in the reserves, you have to go to Norfolk. And I get, you want to be in the Navy, you got to go where the Navy is. And so that was back before the days of remote work and yeah. you know reading trial transcripts at home so i was told if you want to be in the reserves you have to go to norfolk well i was in charlotte that's a 12 ish hour 13 hour round trip once a month trying to start a family new jobs it just didn't make financial or other sense sure. to do this so i wanted to but and i don't blame anybody but nobody was willing to be remotely accommodating to keep me in the reserve. so I said, "Okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on." It's still something I wish that I could have done, but not at the cost that it was all available or offered.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. As you look back, what have been some of the I guess? Some of the lessons that you've learned in the transitioning process. Is there anything that you wish you would have known as you headed in there? Was there any shortcuts? I mean, you've already hit on the idea that coming from the military is not an easy sell. It's, it's someone compared it to zoo animals. Everybody likes you, but nobody knows how to treat you. And trying to make that piece fit into the civilian sector, I hear that a lot. And, I, and I'm seeing it too as I go through my own transition.
1: Well, the Navy JAG thing absolutely has a selling point. For example, when I ran for office first time in 2010 and then again in 20, uh, 2022, even after 12 years on the bench, I would meet voters and I led with, I'm a former Navy Jag. And even if people didn't know what that is, they were like, oh, wow. Because most people who do know what it is, they associate it with a TV show or they associate it with a few good men. And it just has a positive association. And so from an election standpoint, I used that all the time. I I still consider it to be one of the best selling points and one of the campaign talking points that resonates with people more than any other. But from an employability standpoint, as you just noted, it was really hard to get people to see the value. Looking back, if I was going to do the process differently, I'm reminded of what my dad said, which is that the best time to look for a job is when you have a job. So I would have been a little less picky in looking for that first opportunity on my way out, recognizing that you know, take that first opportunity, grow where you're planted, and then if another opportunity presents itself somewhere else so that you want to do, then go do that. And so I, I, if I had to, oh, to do over again, I would not have done that brief stint in civil practice. I would have gone straight to the DA's office and not been you know, so prideful or selfish to think I didn't want to do criminal and then use that as a springboard to something else if I wanted to.
0: Yeah. You know, everybody tells me that it comes down to the networking aspect, which, you know, your case proved to be the case too. Yes, you, you got a connection with the law firm because somebody else had served in the JAG course, So there was that networking aspect. And then your, you landing at the district attorney's office was because you had a classmate who was there, who wanted you there. Yes. And so, you know, just again, does the, uh, the slap on the table here about the importance of networking. It's frustrating at times, but who you
1: know is very much relevant and sometimes more important than what, you know, um, if I was going to give advice to anybody who's trying to get out or looking to get out once they have a target area of what they want to be, or where they want to be, do everything you can to look up former Jags or reservists in the area. That was one of my primary sources of networking. There are multiple former Jags in Charlotte some of whom had some pretty illustrious and well-known careers. Some just did four years and, and did their, you know, their minimal commitment and moved on. But that's a great network to tap into. Even if it's just, Hey, can I buy you a coffee? You know, Hey, can I give you a call? Not, Hey, give me a job, but just building that network. And the sooner you can do it once you've decide that you think you're ready to get out and to that, you know, where you want to go, the better, the more time you can start building those relationships and building those connections. You also need to be willing to start at the bottom and do something you don't know how to do. You know, maybe you, maybe you don't want to do personal injury work, but maybe that's the opportunity. And maybe you need to get in there and grind for a couple of years and learn the ins, ins and outs of civil practice. And maybe that eventually opens the door to go over to the insurance side or whatever the case may be. But, you know, folks need to be willing to come out and kind of grind and show their competence and experience that they got from the Navy. And I'm sure that'll shine through, but they need to be willing to put in the work and not be too prideful for what that first opportunity is going to be post-Navy.
0: You know, as you look back, so it's been about 16 years since you started your job search and 15 years since you actually transitioned from the Navy of how much things have changed in regard to the existence and prolific use of LinkedIn or the uh, post-COVID now, the number of interviews and stuff that are done remotely, as you already indicated, remote work, and how that would have revolutionized at that time, made your life a lot easier, possibly trying to get a job from South Carolina into North Carolina and not have to burn, leave, and travel. So we've kind of got you know, necessity drives uh, innovation, and now we take these things for granted of you you and I talking here, you're in North Carolina, up in, I'm in Northern Virginia, you know, and I've had these VTCs, VTCs, that's an outdated term, had these Zoom calls with somebody as far as Japan. And it really, really has changed the landscape of of looking for work.
1: It has, it has. But even then, there's no substitute for the personal connection that comes with a handshake and sitting down and just sharing a little bit of time together. So, Yeah, absolutely. I wish this had been available back then, but even then there's just something to be said for getting to a firm and walking around and meeting somebody in person and proving that, that, you know, you didn't just turn it on for 20 minutes on a zoom call. Um, You're actually a decent fellow.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I'm, you know, I've looked at a couple of places and talking to people about, Hey, what's the work culture like? And they say, well, you know, we do three days in the office, two days at home. And I'm thinking, man, you know, Here I am going to be starting something completely new. And the idea of being in that office environment where you're just exposed to issues and you learn things just by your presence, whether you're wanting to learn something or not, you pick up things. And now a lot of this is coming right out of the gate. You'll be working from home a couple of days a week.
1: I agree with that. And in fact, one of the things that I enjoyed most when I went to the district attorney's office was it reminded me of being in the Navy again and being at that first TSO because you remember what it's like to have a bunch of JOs. You know, you're all similar life stage, doing similar work. You have that camaraderie. Sometimes you develop that unfortunate gallows sense of humor, which is a way of coping with the difficult things you see, but you just connect with people. And I think that most folks coming out of the Navy are probably going to, Probably going to resonate, I would think at least with those more in-office jobs. I think team is important and relationships are important. And that's without. I enjoyed the work and I enjoyed the travel during my time in the Jag Corps. But without a doubt, it was the relationships that are my biggest memory and distinctive. And I'm still in touch with three good friends. One fellow lieutenant who was with me in Japan, and then he went over to the Nilso in Spain at the same time. I'm still in touch with these guys. And it's such a great experience. So I, I'm, my guess is that a lot of people who are looking to get out will be and should be looking for similar environments where they can have that same sense of relationship and same sense of camaraderie that you have in the Navy.
0: Well, Matt, it's funny how life turns out. And uh, your, your story is, is an example of that. Any other points or lessons that you think is worth mentioning? Here's your here's your chance to make a final argument.
1: I think what I would say is that find something you're passionate about in the law and become an expert in it. And that will help you at that next step level when you decide to get out. I know that you know for a lot of, even senior jags who kind of have that super varied experience, you become a jack of all trade and a master of none. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless you would end up at a code, for example, they might be the exception to this, but the JAG Corps wants generalists. It does. That's generally, that, that's, I think that's what the, what the JAG Corps wants. And that's what the JAG Corps needs. Someone who can go into any environment with a broad range of experience and do something. That doesn't work as well in private practice or in the real world. You need to be an expert in something, in some field of law, whether it's criminal defense or family law or construction law, or juvenile, or wills, trusts, and estates. Find your niche, find what you're passionate about, and become an expert in that while also networking in that field. And when you make that transition, I think that will help. It's that generalist nature of what the Navy trains us to do that I think is part of why the outside world struggles to figure out what box to put us in. They want that guy who are a girl who's 10 years of secured transactions and that's literally all they've ever done as boring as that sounds but they can plug and play that person into their corporate practice for us we may have 10 years experience as, as a lawyer with fantastic experience but we don't have that particularized experience so I, I would, that that would be my encouragement to anybody even as the navy forces us to generalize is to figure out what your passion is and whether it's on the side or with local CLEs or local networking, whatever you do, try to really figure out what that is and invest in your own specialization.
0: Yeah. And I tell you, you know, going out and, and painting pictures, it's great for resume in a sense that journalists approached that a lot of times you're able to hit a lot of marks of what they're seeking, but it's, you know, the experience is about inch deep instead of a mile deep. My experience has been your, it's it's hard to compete because of that generalist attitude that there's jobs that you take that you had to get up to speed. And I'll turn, for example, your deployment on the ESG. You know, the rules of engagement, and law of the sea are not things that you probably spend any time studying at Regent and certainly didn't incorporate in your practice as a first tour TSO trial counsel. But all of a sudden- you know, that proverbial fire hose, you had to learn it and be able to apply it and advise on it. Now, fortunately, we operated on those deployments in a mission where people had a little bit of experience on the receiving in this client. So they, you know, you were able to get there, but trying to convince people that, hey, I've been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years, and I'm pretty confident in my ability to pick it up. Well, as you said, they're looking for people to plug and play And that's where back to the networking aspect comes in. I think that is this tidal wave of Jags out there. Former Jags is what to land that first job. Yeah, there there are some
1: firms like this who are willing to make that investment, who just see the value of the experience in the person and are willing to make that investment. Most businesses, and this is true across the corporate world, like I said, want to plug and play somebody with experience who can get to work, can be profitable. Right away. And so while there are firms out there that are willing to make that investment, they're going to be few and far between relative to those who want someone who can come in and again, just be immediately profitable, billing hours. And that's the other part is, you know, I didn't come out of the Navy with a book of business. (laughs) When you move from firm to firm, a lot of times you have clients you can take with you. And so, again, that's another strike, for lack of a better term, against us, but that's where you can compensate you can compensate for that by specializing as much as possible.
0: But it's life journeys like yours that we're now sharing with the JAG Corps writ large and former JAGs that show that it can be done. And so thank you for coming on and giving guys like us hope. I mean, you came in the Navy 10 years after me, but I'm learning from you to show that this experience and and is all relative.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and share my experience and hopefully it helps somebody. And if there's anybody who listens to this, who's going to be transitioning to the Charlotte area, North Carolina, or anywhere in the state, don't hesitate to reach out and I'll do what I can to help you or put you in touch with others who may be in a better position to do so.
0: And that's what it's about. Ladies and gentlemen, the Honorable Matt Osman. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the JAG Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.